Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And today we're joined by Dr. Jill Lasky from the Lasky Pediatric Dental Group in Southern California, Studio City. I don't even remember the recommendation that led us to Dr. Jill, but what a find. I feel like we say this about a lot of people in our life. We've been really fortunate to have been led in the right direction. And she just has a way of putting you at ease and giving you approaches that are accessible and realistic. And that has been such a useful tool for both of our kids, for both Liam and Sophia. And she's a mom. You know, she has two boys. I think it probably stems from that, that she understands the reality of a household and trying to get kids to brush, floss, and maintain their their dental health. And if it's not something we can do as parents, then we're not going to do it right? Oh, totally. And in this episode, she gives us tips to share with you on how to tackle those what can be overwhelming, you know, nighttime uh, routines. Yeah. No, Dr. Jill has been great. And her whole staff, I mean, she's got a front desk people that are great, the hygienists. There's a gentleman that does x-rays. They're always so attentive to the kids and how they're feeling at that moment and adjusting. And I think we'll talk about that a lot in this episode is just how you each child, just like each person, no matter what, they're all unique and you have to work in a unique, fluid environment. They made going to the dentist a non-issue. And as a parent, let's let's face it, it's great not to have something be an issue. She has an expertise in pediatrics and so she's agreed to come talk to us. I'm excited. Whoever thought I'd be excited to see the dentist? Let's start. Yep. Here we go. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Jill. Hello. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. Maybe you could uh, give us a little insight and tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Of course. My name is Jill Lasky, and I am a pediatric dentist here in Studio City, California. Not everybody knows what a pediatric dentist is. So after dental school, you can specialize in braces or gum disease or root canals, and there is a subspecialty called pediatric dentistry. So I have extra training in the growth and development of strictly children from age zero to 18. And in that kind of training, you also learn, spend a lot of time learning about children with special needs and how to treat them and their unique challenges and advantages that comes with children that have neurological differences. So that's what my practice specializes in as well, is just kind of routine cleaning and fillings for kids of all ages. Yeah, how does that look? How how were you uh, instructed about kids uh, in all different spectrums of disabilities? I personally did a two-year residency at Children's Hospital Boston, and in that time, we treated the greater Boston area, and also there was a lot of clinics, like cranial facial clinics, that had to do with children 
um, with all types of syndromes. And then there was also a special autism program at the hospital at the time. And then we had to treat all the children on the floor that were going through different surgical procedures, how leukemia or any other pediatric cancers. So it was just an intense two-year training when I was just basically lived at the hospital as a resident. I didn't know you you were at Children's in Boston. That's a fantastic hospital. Yes, it was um, association with Harvard Medical School. So we also had some training at the dental school there as well. It was a, it was a wonderful time, so an intense experience, but it definitely prepared me and gave me the foundation for myself to grow and learn and develop my own style in my private practice here in California. Well, specifically to Down syndrome, did you have any personal experience with, with children? I mean, I had quite a few um, when I was a resident. And then in my private practice now, I have the honor of, you know, caring for Liam and a handful of other children with Down syndrome. A lot of what I do when I'm with kids with Down syndrome are similar to other kids with, you know, that are like neurologically different. But at the same time, a lot of it's the same what you do with everybody. I think the core of my philosophy with treating any child is to kind of make that connection, make that touch point with them at whatever level they're at and to try to feel and build a trust with them because that's the core of all treatment. If you can gain trust and establish a connection, you can go so much farther with anything you have to do, especially, you know, the dreaded dental treatment that so many people are fearful of. So we try to make it as positive experience as possible. Well, that's one thing we've learned with Liam is just that we didn't know when when we, he was born was just how uh, normal things were going to be, you know, just how we were going to just treat him the same. And you just kind of gauge each kid differently because everyone's unique. And that's probably in your practice as well. Like you said, I mean, you could have uh, uh, just dozens of typical kids that are just all different. They're just all over the place, and you have to, you have to be precise and and individualized with your care. A hundred percent. I mean, that's you know, a kid that might be a superstar socially, you know, just can't stand going to the dentist. I mean, the the oral cavity is such a private area that you at the same time experience so much of life with, I mean, think about toddlers, they're always, they have their hands in their mouth and they're exploring the world with their mouth. So I have to basically invite myself into that private area and make sure that they're comfortable before and make sure they're comfortable with me as a person via like touch and, you know, where are they on their, um, understanding and where are they on their communication? All of that goes into the first few minutes that I'm meeting the child. I kind of have a, you know, ability to assess all of those things and then take it from there. In addition, it's so important to make sure that the parents are comfortable with what you're doing because so much of a child, um, especially zero to three, but, you know, even older, they gauge on the comfort comfort level with the parent. So it's key in my practice to make sure that I understand what the parents concerns are because my concerns might not be what their concerns are to make sure the parents have a voice and if they feel comfortable their energy is then projected onto their child and it helps the comfort level and helps settle the child down before I have to do whatever I have to do 
Yeah, it is a, a very intimate uh, relationship that you get in with your dentist. And um, when do you advise that parents start to talk about the dentist and dentistry to their children? So I think that's important. It's critical to find a dental home, is what we like to call it, um, by the child's first birthday. Because, and for, for all children. And I think that by age one, if they have teeth or if they don't have teeth, there is some movement. They're scooting around, they might, you know, they're pulling up, they're walking. The risk of having any kind of dental trauma increases, you know, than before when they were not, when they weren't mobile. So no, it's, it's very stressful if your child falls down and has any kind of trauma to their mouth to then scram and be like, where do I go? And, and honestly adore pediatricians, but they don't really, they don't get, you know, much education in medical school, how to care for the mouth. So that is, you know, not the first place to go to. So if you already have established a dental home or if having a dentist, something to go to, that's key. Then the next thing is, um, Typically, children on that, not all, and that, that's especially ones with Down syndrome tend to get teeth later, but, you know, not even um, all children sometimes don't have a tooth by the first birthday. But if they have a tooth, you really should care for it. So by that first birthday, parents should have a checkup for their child, but it's really mostly for the parent and less about the child, just so the parents can learn how to best care for their children's teeth. And most kids are more in solid foods by then and, you know, what food choices are best, you know, and also really to kind of have an idea, especially kids with Down syndrome, get a basic idea of what do our parents have to possibly expect over the next six months? Because for that um, 12 to 18 months, a lot of things do change. And the parents, if you understand and have the knowledge, it's a lot more anxiety. It reduces the anxiety levels if you have information and if you have a place to go in case something happens. So by the first birthday, for sure. I remember it was, I was thinking back at Liam's first birthday and I know his teeth came in a little later than Sophia's did, but, um, I, I remember him having uh, sticking his tongue out sometimes, not only just when he was concentrating, but even just when he relaxed a little bit. I think it was a low tone. I think it's something that's common uh, in children with Down syndrome. Uh, and I remember just getting in this rhythm of just always just putting my finger gently and just pushing his, his tongue back in his mouth and just saying, tongue in, and just kind of encouraging that. I, I, I had actually seen on the Internet yesterday someone asking that question of what do I do uh, for protruding tongue? And I almost responded on Facebook with what I did. Maybe you could tell us as a professional, is there a recommendation for protruding tongues? So kids with Down syndrome definitely have larger tongues. That is that's a very common um, dental um, manifestation of the syndrome, along with smaller teeth, narrow jaws, and a, low, a larger lower jaw, kind of like the bulldog, like the underbite look, and a smaller upper jaw. So the kind of combination of everything makes the tongue kind of stick out. And some of the times it's because of muscle tone, like you'd mentioned with Liam and trying to kind of, you know, work with if you hopefully have some other occupational therapy um, that they can kind of help or language or anything, you know, one of the other therapies as well to kind of help remind him to get the tongue in if they can, but sometimes it physically, some of the children, their tongues don't really fit in the mouth yet. So 
besides the um, reminder with what you do with your finger, the next thing is to making sure that it's kind of moist all the time, um, making sure that the salivary flow is there and making sure that it's clean. Because those, those are the things that if they're not clean and if they're not moist, you can get into problems. But um, the reminder of it helps when they're older, there are some orthodontic appliances that they can kind of help or orthodontists, um, depending on the cooperation level of a child that might need to intervene to help it physically fit in the mouth better, help, you know, widen the jaw and do some things. So it's kind of, there's many different factors, but having the tongue kind of stick out is a, a typical, um, uh, not even habit. It's just placement of the tongue with kids with Down syndrome. So let's say the mouth is dry. What do you do about that? So making sure the fluids are always there and also to make sure that all the salivary glands are working properly. So that would be something that they're having to visit the dentist. And also if it is happens to be dry, there are different like toothpaste and salves that you can put on. But again, I would, that's something that the body usually does compensate and keeps it moist, but keeping it clean is probably the biggest thing that a parent can do at home. And I would do that by just taking a washcloth and wiping the tongue and wiping it from as far back as a child can tolerate without gagging and going outwards. Cause that will make sure that all the bacteria and things don't stay on the tongue. You're actually wiping it out. When you brush with a toothbrush, it kind of swirls it around. So that's not as beneficial as taking a washcloth or a gauze and just kind of wiping it out. That's a better way of keeping the tongue clean. Like kind of tongue scraping, I guess. Exactly. I mean, you can use a scraper, but it's a lot of times a lot easier to just use a washcloth or some some little gauze that you can get at the drugstore. And speaking of brushing the teeth and and that might kind of swirl things around. Um, we've actually, Liam is great with brushing his teeth. I mean, he, he does as good a job as he can. We, we follow up with him, but he's very independent in doing it. For listeners out there, we've had so many more problems with Sophia's teeth than uh, Liam's. And I you can have... speak to that. Some of that is does have to do with the spacing of the teeth. The teeth are smaller. There's typically more space between them. And if the tongue is larger, it's actually more protective because your tongue typically is moist and the and saliva has a lot of protective qualities in it. So usually kids with Down syndrome have less decay, but maybe have more gum disease issues, um, depending how much lip confidence or how easily it is for them to close their mouth um, to keep their gums, you know, lips over the gums. Um so it's, it is usually, and then they create a lot more tartar typically, just the way the saliva is. So you usually have less cavities. Like that's what parents usually think of, of good teeth or bad teeth, depending on how many, how much decay there is. So you are, it is a true and common statement for kids with Down syndrome to have less decay. Um, and that's why I know that <laughs> you made the comment about having more issues with Sophia, either from the decay point of view or also crowding and things like that, because Liam's mouth is more forgiving in that sense, which is definitely a silver lining and a blessing. It should be a relief to parents because I'll tell you, when we uh, brought Liam to you after having Sophia with you for a couple of years uh, and seeing what, what just having cavities and just, you know, just some things we, I was rolling my eyes going, now what are we going to have with Liam? But it's been, it's been great. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's really yeah. The biggest thing is really that you know the shape of the face and the and the the discrepancy between the size, the discrepancy between the size of the upper and lower jaw, which is something you typically deal with um, when they're done growing. And depending on the severity, you may or may not need orthognathic or jaw surgery to align to make sure that chewing is you know as easy as possible. But that varies just like, you know, the different severity and the different shape of the face It all, you kind of assess that on an individual basis. But there are plenty of clinics and doctors throughout the country that are well-versed in making sure that your child can masticate or chew, you know, the, the best possible. But a lot of that is just done when they're, when they're completely done growing. That's when those things are taken care of. But finding a dentist that can help you until you get to that point is key. And making sure that you have routine visits, having that be once a month to make sure your child is comfortable, can tolerate things in a dental, you know, setting to all the way to, you know, every six months, if they're kind of used to it and roll with it and their dental needs are not extreme. And anywhere on that spectrum, it is important to stay on top of their dental care because like anything else, the more you kind of avoid it because you might have angst and your own issues about dentistry itself, the worse it's going to be. So, you know, it's like you just kind of have to say, we just got to push through this because at the end, it will be definitely, definitely more beneficial for your child if they have routine care. I know sometimes it seems overwhelming to have one more thing you have to do, but it is really important to make things as easy to catch things when they're small and, you know, easier to handle than when they get larger and bigger problems. So what can we do at home to prepare a child for dental care and visiting the dentist? I think that introducing the toothbrush and even a washcloth, getting inside the child's mouth at six months, between six and eight months, I think is critical, even if there's absolutely no tooth. I think that I tell parents when they're, you know, have the child on the changing table and just before they go to bed to take a washcloth or a little finger brush and there could be absolutely nothing on it or it could be we have some water or it could have a natural fluoride free toothpaste. Um, Any of those, whatever you think your child would, you know, be most cooperative or you can try them all and see what works. And one thing might work one week and two weeks later it doesn't and you go to the next thing. But I think just making them aware and just talking and saying, you know, now mom or dad or, you know, grandma or whoever's putting them to bed is be like, you know, we're going to wipe our teeth now. And just talking to the child and making them aware that even though there's nothing in there right now, that this is something that we have to clean, just like we have to clean your bottom and, you know, the rest of your body. So that is something that I really think is critical for all children. And that around that, like, kind of six to eight months or it, later just whenever they kind of seem like this is something we can put on our plate now when you kind of get out of that a little bit of the fog um i think it's critical to do that then you can also incorporate into your you know reading any kind of books about going to the dentist um just so they just kind of aware that it's there's something that you go to take care of um then just modeling i think is really important for for your kids to have them, you know, in the bathroom when you, when you're brushing your teeth and just talking about it with them, all of that, the earlier, the better, um, I think to do. So when they do go to the dentist for the first visit, it, they might not register, remember it, 
but they'll have that in their subconscious to know that this is something we have to be doing. And the first visit is when I recommend because it's really for the parent to have a dental home. So they know, and that's really parent education appointment more than the child. And we will look in their mouth. So even if there isn't a tooth at a year, I think between you know, year 14 months or so, definitely the latest by 18 months, you should have their first visit, but you should at least maybe establish some place to go around a year. And bringing to the dentist any songs or things that you do at home with your child helps if you let the dentist know that I can, then he or she can incorporate that into the visit as well, make it a easier transition for that child for that first visit. A lot of people, you know, their kids have siblings as well. So are there methods that, one, the sibling may have as much uh, anxiety about going to the dentist, or I know that in our case, Sophia had definitely more angst about the dentist than Liam ever did. He just, I think he just kind of rolled with the punches. Anything that you could speak on with the siblings, how to incorporate them? Sometimes it works both ways. I have parents, I always ask them, especially for the second one, do you think that your older sibling would be helpful to model. You know, I mean, every dynamic is different, right? And if the older one is more fearful, sometimes I have the little ones go first and model for their older siblings, you know, what it's like to go into the, the sit in the dental chair. It, it's so variable. I think the best thing to do is to communicate with your medical provider and just to, to figure out the best plan to see if the children should be together, be separate, have bring them on different days, which one should go first. I think that if the younger child likes to emulate the older one and the older one is fearful, it might be better to remove the older child from the situation. If, if it's the opposite, it's helpful to have them come. I think that's my concern is for, you know, parents who maybe their, their atypical child has a lot of angst and fear. I know one thing we always talk to Sophia about is, you know, Liam looks up to you and he's going to mimic you. So how do we take their fears out of the whole equation to, because, you know, Sophia ultimately grew out of, mostly (laughs) grew out of those fears. But our, our fear was that like, you know, Liam would see, oh, I should be afraid of this. And then it would be a much harder behavior. I know he'd grow out of it, but it would, it would be so much work to get him to grow out of that initial fear. Yes, I, I hear what you're thinking. That makes logical sense. I'm going to tell you from my 20 plus years of experience treating kids, so much of it is innate. Some people are just like are fearful for absolutely no reason. Nothing ever happened to them you know, in this, you know, to them that of knowledge, I, I think there is just someone asked me when someone asked me this before, and I mentioned like my son, Jack was scared of dogs. I, nothing happened to him. He like came out petrified of dogs and people asked, you know, why, why? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Why are you, why are you drawn to them? I mean, I think that there's something in our DNA or, you know, we can get spiritual and hypothetical about this, but I think you kind of come in a lot of times with, with these fears or not. So the good news is that although so many people have anxiety about it, it's important for me to really judge where the parent is. Cause a lot of times, a lot of the energy comes from the parents. If the parents have angst, um, I need to make sure that they feel comfortable before I even step um, near the child's mouth. I think I like, it's important as a a a provider to really make sure you connect on a personal level first 
before you go and invite yourself into that very private space of their mouth. So then I'll know, like, you know, I, I have to work some ways with kids that are more anxious, like, you know, Sophia um, or my son, Jack, or sometimes I have to, it's fine. We can like, honestly, I, I kind of get that. I feel that the kid will jump on the chair and even though they might hate the pediatrician, they're fine with me. Or sometimes they're fine with the pediatrician and then, you know, don't want anyone in their personal, you know, space in their mouth. So it's, I think a lot of it is finding the right match with the dentist who can kind of look beyond what they, what their preconceived or make sure they don't have any preconceived ideas about how any child's going to react with Down syndrome or not, and really be kind of aware of what I have to deal with right now in the room at this moment, and then be able to adjust accordingly on how they're going to provide their care. I think that's really important. And, and hopefully there's a lot of pediatric dentists or family dentists, depending on you know where you are in the country, there's not always a pediatric specialist you know, available. It's important for a parent to find that right fit. So then their child, no matter if they're, if they are typical or not to thrive and get the most out of their dental experience, because that's the reason why I became a pediatric dentist is that I'm really molding how their kids are going to care for their bodies, or at least I hope that I'm influencing, I don't know if I'm molding, I'm influencing how they're going to perceive you know, dental care, and it's such a critical importance to your overall health, especially long term. I think about it, you get older, heart disease and and diabetes and so many other things are connected to really how healthy your mouth is. So if a child can feel comfortable and maybe say to me, you know, I, you know, Dr. Lasky, I don't like what you do, but, you know, I know I feel safe with you. That's okay, because at least I know that they know that as when they're an adult and they're in the world, they can hopefully find somebody they feel comfortable with and will go for their, their, you know, biannual dental cleaning so they can keep their body as, you know, healthy as possible. Which brings about a topic that everybody loves and that's flossing. Do you want, would you talk about flossing? I know Steven's just discovered the water pick. Do those go, do those go hand in hand, flossing and water pick? Yeah, the latest research shows that if you, um, use a water pick. The um, I only can speak for the water pick brand. There are ADA studies, American Dental Association studies, that that is equivalent to flossing. And a water pick is definitely more user friendly than flossing. Although there are different flossing um, tools, like this thing called gum chucks that has a two handed model that's easier to floss properly. But the water pick is uh, absolute amazing tool. They have ones now that even can go in the shower. So you don't necessarily need to floss or do that kind of gum care, floss or water pick in conjunction with brushing. So if you're bathing once a day, you can have the water pick in your shower or bathtub. And especially since it's on the messier side and you're in a water environment, you don't, you know, does not, doesn't matter as much. And you can, you know, use your water pick when you're bathing. And then that's the one time a day you can brush brush your teeth before or after. So it's a great, great um, adjunct. And it definitely, you don't need the same dexterity. Um, and it feels good to have the kind of like that, you know, pressure washer on your, on your gums. So it's a, a great tool. Um, wa- water pick or flossing is imperative to keeping your gums healthy. Well, I can tell you probably no matter how healthy your gums are, you can brush your teeth and rinse your mouth, and then you get a water pick in there and, 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 
and it only has to happen every once in a while, you'll go, wait, how did, how did that just come out? Yeah, because of the, I'm going to get into the boring, but it's the amount of the angle and the pulsing that it, it'll get things up in the sulcus, which is the, the, um, kind of like the neck between the tooth and the gum. And it, the water can kick things up that were down there deeper, that our toothbrush bristles can't sweep down there. And flossing only goes between the teeth. It doesn't go like on the, the flat part, the direct part of your, your tooth. So yeah, the water picks great. You know, you mentioned the pulsing. I, uh, for me, I don't use the pulsing just because I don't know if it's doing as much. It doesn't feel like it's this strong, but you were just mentioning it. it does it sometimes maneuver things better? Well, it does. It even just the way it squirts out, but you know, it's just the, even if you use it on a regular mode, it still has like a pulsing that you're not aware of that it, it does. It's just the, it's just how it's manufactured. That's why I know that the water pick brand has that. And that's what the studies are correlated with versus some other brands. I don't know if they have that same capacity. It's fine to use on the standard mode as well. In regards to the water pick, do you have any suggestions or approaches for somebody who has Down syndrome? Like how, how would I approach like for Liam? What advice would you give me if uh, I wanted to start him on a water pick? So the best thing to do for all dental care when you're trying to do it on somebody else is to go from behind. So in front, even if it's, you know, a parent, a loving caregiver, right? It, you're you're going to be more, something's coming at you, right? So our animal instinct is to dodge it, right? So if you're from behind and the child puts their head up to the, looking at the ceiling, then they're looking at eyes to eyes and you can see the person and then you have more control of their head. So that's, that's the first thing I would do. So for brushing, that's the technique I recommend. Um, and for using any kind of water pick, or if you want to floss your child, so have them stand, you stand behind them, they put their head up and then you are able to brush or use a water pick. If you want them to model or want them to try to do it independently, um, the one that I referred to that can go into the shower is portable. It's wireless. So you, they can use it with one or two hands, depending on, you know, their grasp and, and their dexterity level and just have them close their lips. I would first show them with it off and show them kind of put it at the gum line and then to point it on, you have to pierce your lips so it doesn't go everywhere. Um, but just kind of, I would mimic it by guiding them with their hand on the machine, on the apparatus, you know, with you. And then eventually they'll be able to let your hand go, just like you would the training wheel or a bike or anything else. You kind of have to guide them through and then eventually they'll feel comfortable and you let go and you let them, you know, go at it. But coming from behind is key. So toothbrush, obviously the main tool to use. Um, if you can try to get your kids to floss. You had mentioned gum chucks that might help with flossing, make it a little easier. I mean, with the handles and stuff. And I know Sophia uses those. She really likes the gum chucks. Also, a water pick, which is a very effective option, feels good in your mouth. Um, some kids might really like that. Are there any other tools that you recommend that parents can introduce to their children to help them maintain oral health? Yeah, I've had parents have success with like the the double-headed toothbrushes, um, especially if their child really likes to gnaw and chew, if that's kind of like whenever there's something in their mouth, they, they tend to chew on it. There's ones um, that have like bristles on both sides. A lot of parents like that. There's ones where it's like two hands. It's almost like a, a two-handed cup. I mean, I would definitely kind of do a search 
um, on the internet and you kind of just have to buy a few and see what works best. But the bottom line, whatever I say, um, uh, some kids like the electric toothbrushes, they like that vibration, that stimulation, um, you know, is, is good for them. They like that vibration on their gums with or without teeth, but it's consistency. I would pick a time of day. I would definitely not do it right before you go to bed. Parents, um, say to me that, it, you know, a lot of times like you've had enough. I would, I think that brushing before you, after you eat and before you go to bed is critical because while you sleep, everything sits, they're not moving their tongue around, they're not talking. And that's when the damage kind of happens. So it's key to have a PM brush. But sometimes it's best to take care of that in the kitchen or right after you're finished eating um, and not doing it like maybe after bath and things are already kind of quieted down because a lot of times I can get the kids riled up again or everyone's kind of had a day and they're done and they need whatever bedtime hour is to not come soon enough, you know, sometimes. So I'm a realistic person. So I would kind of pick an earlier in the evening and just do it every single day, no matter what. I wouldn't skip unless your child's like in the car and they fall asleep and you transform into their crib. But anything shy of that, even if it's for 10 seconds, you need that consistency because for everybody, that routine is key. Um, it might be a different toothbrush tonight. It might be without toothpaste because you don't want to have that fight tonight, but it needs to be some attention to the mouth. That's what I'd recommend. And whatever you can get in there. If you, if you, <laughs> whatever you can get, I mean, the two minutes twice a day is, I don't know, that's I'm not in my parenting world in my house that, that is still struggle with um, 17 and 14 year old boys. So it's, you know, it, you need to at least kind of get, my goal is five seconds every evening, I think is. Is that anything above that, you know, you're, you're cheering yourself and you're patting yourself on the back. I mean, that's, I, it's a, it's maybe not going to write that in a textbook on, you know, how to care for teeth, but that's kind of like the realistic parent approach that I think that I need to make sure that parents know it's okay. It's okay. That if that's all you did tonight, it's okay. Again, this is why we love you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just the ease you give, because, you know, you as a parent know the pressures that we all have. And if you're a parent of a child with a disability, you you could have a little more pressure involved. I mean, we feel that way, um, but some people may not. But to us, there's just this overwhelming pressure chamber that's just kind of ready to go off, just kind of more there. And, and if we can just feel, hey, even if it's no toothpaste, just just can I get a toothbrush in my kid's mouth doing that and getting that in there and just making a routine? And then can we just move on? Yes. I know you, you, a lot of times you're like, I want my kids. I want to, or they're, they should be doing what, you know, next door is doing, what my friend's doing. We fight as parents that compare, right? Look at my child for who they are. Look at my child for who they are. But sometimes you like worry, is this what we're supposed to be? And everybody does that. But if you can just stay centered and just feel like I'm doing what I know is best for what my individual child right now, and I'm doing the best they can. And this is what our reality is, you know, in this, this quarantine. And we were having discussing before, like, what is this going to mean for our kids? for not having these milestones met for these, you know, life events that are happening on in a virtual world or not having experience with other, you know, 
peers, we just have to sit back for a minute and be like, well, the child that's going through it has nothing else to compare it to. So let's just make it the best experience we can and not try to feel pressured and, and, and rushed and feel like we have to look, look next to us and behind us and around us and just be present with what you have right there and be grateful for that, what we have. Just even hearing your conversation and the pressure, you know, that we have with, you know, brushing, brushing Liam's teeth and making it into a habit. And we've had relatively good success because, because I think we've had these conversations with you and Liam has made it into a habit and he is very proud at this, you know, it was struggle, but now he'll do it on his own and he loves it because he feels so independent and he wants to come out and show us his teeth and have us smell his breath. So, but it's, it's that uh, level of ease that you, you, your words can really give. It gave me the freedom to, 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 to be there, you know, and, and sometimes we need that permission because we're always trying to, I think any parent, any mother, any father, any guardian is always trying to do it right. And we're all doing our best. But sometimes that I'm trying to do it right can make this subtle shift into just this insurmountable pressure we put on ourselves. And it does take someone from the outside to give us the permission to not seek this perfection that we continually seek that inevitably falls with a hard hammer <laughs> of reality. Always. I know. <laughs> and the other thing is, I mean, I, I have, there's a common, I mean, my son, sucked his pacifier too, was almost six years old. I mean, his mom, dad, and grandfather are pediatric dentists. That is what, you know, David needed. I, I, it's, it's, I'm not supposed to do it. What are you doing? You're messing up his teeth. I mean, all the things I'm like, okay, but that, you know, I had to look at him in different than his brother. And, and I, I have parents, I have other people say, you have to do this and you have to do that. I'm thinking, who's the have to person? All we have to do is love our kids and provide, uh, you know, uh, the safest home possible and, you know, hopefully food on their table and give them a sense of security because where they feel safe, then they can thrive and grow and be as independent as they can. So that's, I don't know, the have to stuff bothers me. It's, it's, it can be very wane and it sounds like you're doing good to have like guidelines, but sometimes it, it back, I think it backfires and then it, you, you fall as a parent and then that can spiral to something else that isn't going to be helpful for anybody, yourself, your relationship, you know, anyone at all. Well, that really is a great segue into what we like to ask guests a lot of times is an if we knew then statement. Usually it has something to do with uh, Down syndrome. I was trying to figure out how to ask you this question of something that you wish you knew, uh, you know, years ago. Um, is there is there something you wish you knew years ago? About? Or last week. Oh yeah, it could be last week or yesterday. <laughs> something that you that you wish you knew then, and it could be about your practice, or maybe just as a parent, or maybe specific to Down syndrome. Um, I think as I'm my getting older, I can want to talk on more of a parent um, to trust myself more. I think and not question, um, not look around as much. I think that I, I wish I trusted my own instincts a little bit more instead of looking for experts all the time to give me permission to parent the way that I thought was right for, you know, my child and where they where my boys were at that moment on it there. No matter what the 
you know, textbook says where they're supposed to be, what milestone they're supposed to be reaching. If I could just trust my, you know, gut or my, you know, mommy instinct and all those kind of things that we're given with, you know, to are those internal compasses or whatever, you know, catchphrase is important now. I think if I just kind of knew to rely on that, I think that that's probably it would have made those first few years a lot easier for me as a parent. Just having you as our dentist really changed basically my relationship with both of my kids. Because one thing that you do that I heard so early on was the way you talked to Sophia and then Liam and the tone and the words you would use. You would say, okay, love, and just really kind, uplifting words. And you don't make a big deal out of it. It's just your vocabulary. And I started to use those words. And that's how I talked to that's how I talked to Sophia, even if she's done something that's frustrating, I'll still use a, a, a kind term of endearment. And it just, it just ch- changes the environment and the relationship. And it while you're like for you, while you're working in their mouth doing this thing that can be very frightening. And then for me, as a parent, you take any situation and at the but at the foundation of it is care. And at and that is so important. And it's not something that's like, hey, I really care about you. So I'm going to floss your teeth now. It's just there. And I think that that's what's absorbed is that okay, this might be scary. And this might even hurt a little bit like the shot might hurt a little bit. But there's just this inside thing that they know that they're cared for and and I've and I took it from you and I use it in the home because I and it does it makes it it makes a huge difference on on any conversation or situation so I thank you for that thank you thank you thank you if I had had you as my or someone like you as my pediatric dentist I I would have not had a gap in my adult life with fearing and then not going to the dentist. Right. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like avoiding. I mean, I know there's like something you want to put your head in your sand doesn't hurt. So I'm not going to go. But then when it hurts, it's like, oh, you know, I wish I could have seen you, you know, X months ago. It's 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 counterintuitive what we want because you it's like it's not bothering you. But it's really prevention. You know, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it's true. It's so true with the mouth. It definitely. And that's why that's my biggest thing. If if finding you know the right dental home for anyone throughout the country i think is a a gift and and you have to find someone who loves what they do i think it's it's imperative well thank you for your time of course thank you appreciate it we don't get this much time to talk normally in the dentist chair (laughs) and you're so informative and i've always loved how your mind works and just it you get the information but with a great personality with it and we appreciate it thank you please follow us on twitter at if we knew then pod and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and talk.